Welcome to Michigan Surgery Sessions, where we discuss the latest in clinical care, education, and surgery culture with faculty, residents, and medical students. We're discussing another important topic in today's podcast designed by the members of the Michigan Women's Surgical Collaborative, implementing strategies in a change-averse or hostile environment. I am Dr. Aaron Perone, who recently took over as lead of the MWSC, and with me today are Dr. Erica Newman and special guest, Dr. Chelsea Harris. Dr. Newman is an associate professor in the section of pediatric surgery, the surgical director of the Mott Solid Tumor Oncology Program, and interim section head for pediatric surgery. She is also the associate chief clinical office for health equity for the University of Michigan Medical Group. Dr. Newman completed general surgery training at the University of Michigan and fellowship training at the University of Chicago Comer Children's Hospital. She's an active member of the Children's Oncology Group, the American Pediatric Surgical Association, the Society of Black Academic Surgeons, and the Association for Academic Surgery. Dr. Newman's specific clinical interests are pediatric surgical oncology, including neuroblastoma, Wilms tumor, and soft tissue sarcoma. She is also interested in surgical diseases of the biliary tract, including liver tumors. Dr. Chelsea Harris is in her first year of plastic surgery fellowship at Johns Hopkins University. She was at Michigan, graced our presence for two years in 2016 and 18. She was on a T32 research fellowship with Dr. Kevin Chung. During that time, she got a master's in health services research, and she also helped us develop our cultural complications curriculum, which we will discuss in just a little bit. So to get started, Dr. Newman, I've been able to watch and learn from your leadership for many years. Can you tell us about the major changes you have seen and been part of implementing in the Department of Surgery around culture? Probably about five years ago, you know, we decided to make a intentional change to really grow a culture that everyone could be successful. When I look now back at sort of like the 30 foot view of that, I think traditionally there has not been a lot of time really in focus on culture. Why? Because we're trying to focus on being excellent surgeons and excellent in the operating room and teach environment and sort of the the health of the culture, I think has never really been at the forefront. And I think that that over time has harmed us. I think that it has created this sense of um, almost like survival, you know, of the fittest, where you just motor through. I I know that we've all experienced that. It was an exciting time, you know, as we were strategizing and working towards thinking more about how do you build culture? And a lot of it, Erin, started with the leadership development program that Dr. Dimmick started many years ago, where people, you know, in the department got to grow as a leader, which is, again, something that, you know, we don't think about as surgeons and being intentional. And I think a definite component of leadership and leadership development is creating an environment, creating that space for people to grow and to be successful. That really set precedents for us to really focus and kind of hone in on, you know, building culture and environment. The Michigan Promise, I think, really came to be because of the work of, you know, that that was sort of set by LDP and 
sort of like this grassroots effort of people coming together saying, you know, we're good as a department. Like we can, we have clinical, clinical excellence. We have the best research programs with one of the top residencies. Something else will, is stopping us from being, you know, as great and as high performing as we can be. Of course, diversity, equity, and inclusion came through that too. It's like we're not, we, we realize that unless we are super diverse, unless we're inclusive, unless we provide equitable opportunities, then we're not as excellent. Where we've grown from that is that we just keep working on it. A couple of years ago, we said, let's put a team of people together that can think about culture. And that, that are there, we started Culture Crew. Um, and then through Culture Crew, other strategies and initiatives, you know, that we think enhance culture. We have not arrived. <laughs> it is something that we need to keep focusing on and keep intentionality around, because if we don't, then not only will we um, not progress, we will lose progress. And so I do think about that a lot and sometimes even worry that, you know, we can't let up. Yeah. So, for those listening, the Michigan Promise, if you're not aware, is sort of a multifaceted um, attempt at our Department of Surgery to attack some of these issues, um, you know, uh, with the environment or with achievement or recruitment. Um, it's six-pronged, but there's plenty of different things that fall within there. And Dr. Newman, you helped with a lot of that. Was it easy to push this forward? You know, change is never easy. But I will say that I think we have a special environment here at Michigan that was really ready um, for change and accepting of change. And not only that, you know, people, when we were, just remember thinking back, you know, having all those meetings and we had so many teams going and people were presenting their ideas and people could feel that, wow, we can really do this. Like we can really make an environment where no matter what you your race, your social economic status, your abilities. We were thinking about gender equity, um, that no matter who you were and what your identity was, that you could be successful in our department. And if, and these were the things that we knew we had to do. Like we had to think about bias and do some implicit bias training. We had to um, provide really good um, mentorship and mentorship teams. And so the launch teams came. We had to recruit, you know, we had to understand who was coming into the department. And I would say like anything else, I remember one of one of our bosses said, you know, you're going to get, there's like the 20% that are early adapters that are like, we're all in, you know, um, and we're, you know, so supportive and active. And then there's that middle, about 60% of the people that, you know, are willing to learn and, and willing to grow and change. And then there's always going to be that 20% that are resistant to change. I think that that is still challenging, you know, um, for, for, for us. And I think for our, you know, I would say as an organization, just understanding how we can do things that are all inclusive and even, you know, the diversity work, like we have to be careful where everybody may not agree, right, with the things that we're trying to do. And so how do we make sure that they are successful and they can express their perspectives? I know I've been thinking lately, we need to allow everyone a little grace too, to make mistakes, especially in the space of uh, culture and um, DEI. 
to, you know, because it's if people just walk around scared that they're going to always say the wrong thing, then nobody says anything as opposed to being okay and providing a culture where it's okay to make a mistake and be corrected and live in that sort of constant learning motion. So Dr. Harris, one of the ways our department has aimed to change culture was to discuss openly in a morbidity and mortality format. And we called this the culture of complications. I know you were part of developing that initiative and we are so thankful for your help with that. Can you tell us a little bit more exactly what that is and how that was rolled out at Michigan Medicine? The spark for the idea started right at the end of my research time. And Dr. Uh, Leslie Dossett and I uh, were sort of the, the point people for it. And the genesis that I got wrapped into it was the Association for Women Surgeons had developed a he for she committee um, and had very astutely recognized that um, if they just had a whole bunch of very prominent men in surgery together, repeating what women had been saying for a long time, that it may just be a bunch of very prominent men getting credit for the women's ideas that have been in circulation for decades. And so one of the caveats for that was that you had to nominate um, a faculty member and a resident to be a part of that committee as well. Um, and so that's how I got leaped into this, that Dr. Gossett was, um, that Dr. Dimmick was um, appointed to the he for she committee. He asked Dr. Gossett and myself to join him um, in that initiative. And then once we had all these really um, excellent people together, um, the, the next question is, is often the case in diversity, equity, and inclusion work is, what do we actually do? We have all these interested parties. And I believe that Dr. Dossett had um, had, had this idea, I think, through Culture Club to start talking about um, instances of cultural breakdown with the same gravity and analytical eye that they were applying to medical complications. And so she had raised this idea um, and that kind of fit in my nexus of skills in terms of um, really wanting to understand diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And also um, I've done a lot of work in visual abstracts. So being able to condense those points down to a few core bullets and then create visuals to go along with them. Over the next year on, um, while I returned to clinical work nights, weekends, um, you know, 2 a.m. on the, <laughs> the overnight stuff, I started building out the curriculum. Um, and the idea is that we'd have 12 core topics in diversity, equity, and inclusion. So that included things like stereotype threat, microaggressions, implicit bias, differences in evaluation, gender fair language, um, a, whole, a whole gamut of things. Um, and the idea was that we would provide highly data-driven, very succinct overviews about like, what is this topic? What is the terminology? What's the science behind how this fits into um, medical practice in particular, but sometimes the greater um, sociological um, frameworks, and then we would match them to how that shows up in the clinical environment, either in the provider experience or in the patient experience. And then once that, that curriculum is built, the idea was that the um, sample case would then replace one of the standard um, medical or surgical complications. And you'd present the case, you'd go through the data, and then you'd open it up to group discussion the same way that you would look at how you, what the factors that made um, medical error, you would look at that in, in culture as well. The University of Michigan and University of Maryland were the first two pilot sites. And based on some of the positive feedback we got on that, um, I then built a website and made the curriculum freely requestable for anyone who wants to have it. And it was sort of the right idea for the times. I think a lot of places had recognized that there was a real gap in this education, but they didn't necessarily know how to fill it in a meaningful way. And so I think we're over about 300 unique requests from departments. It's not just surgery. It's all kinds of different areas. Um, it's across 
uh, multiple countries at this point. So US, Canada, um, UK, Australia, for the most part. So we're really thrilled with how it's taking off. And the other hope is that it's really customizable. That's how cultural complications works. <laughs> it's been quite a roller coaster. So let me restate that. Did you say it's been over 300 places? So I will say there's been at least 300 unique requests. And so that's people wishing to access the curriculum. And not everybody who asks for the curriculum actually moves on to the implementation stage. But I think we're at somewhere around 20 to 30 programs actively rolling it out in some form. And then there's things like Kaiser in Northern California is doing it. And that was one point person, but you know, Kaiser is enormous. So then they're moving it out to all of their associated uh, sites. You had some experience helping some of these places get started. Was it welcomed? Were there any resistors? Dr. Newman basically took the words out of my mouth that when we were thinking about this curriculum and how to roll it out, um, we thought about it in those three audiences, that there's the, the early adopters, the people who are doing the work, there's the middle group. And we sort of looked at it as the people who maybe already, like they're interested, but don't know what to do next. And the blissfully unaware, we kind of lumped them all in the same category. And then there's the skeptics or perhaps critics at the end. Thinking about your audience in this way is is fairly important because one of the things that I think many of us involved in the DEI space have found is a lot of the voluntary activities is that just that top 20%, that it's the same people in every meeting over and over. And we don't need to learn about microaggressions or implicit bias anymore. Like we know the data backwards and forwards. We decided to really try to focus that curriculum on that middle group, the people who needed action strategies and the people who needed to see real data and understand that this is not just some fluffy afterthought, but it's a real thing that's affecting their colleagues, their patients, and in many aspects themselves, and and really creating a a strong scientific basis for that. However, that that doesn't magically rid us of the 20% that are not going to like this thing. And I have definitely faced um, some vocal opposition both in like directly and when I've been strategizing with people who want to roll this out at their home institutions, they are often able to identify individuals who are going to be vocal opposition as well. I think it's also really important to recognize that the hostile environment exists at every single institution, even someplace as like committed to this as Michigan is. And I really think you guys are at the forefront. You know, you're going to have the microcosm, the OR with a person who thinks that maybe this is all a bunch of garbage. And, you know, you're in that environment for four, six hours with the person and it's sort of just you and them or just you and a couple other people. You might be in a clinic where you're isolated, like you're going to get the microcosm. I find this even in my own self that there's, there's, I have blind spots. And so I sort of think, I try to look at my own approach to this and find where did I have the hostile environment within me and how can I go about identifying it and rectifying that um, if I need to. Figuring out who you think your critics are going to be from the beginning, making sure that you have allies and understanding where you fit in the hierarchy. Um, so you know, I'm off, when I was rolling this out, I was a fourth year resident. So I had some cachet within the residency, but I was lower in the attending hierarchy. So you need to understand your ability to affect change from your position. And if you're somewhere towards the bottom of the hierarchy, you need to get allies on your team who can help address the top. Because I think in a a hierarchical environment like medicine and surgery in particular, 
culture is often a very top-down affair and it's wonderful to have grassroots efforts, but if you don't have the people at the top who can stand behind you and, you know, water your grassroots, <laughs> you're, you're going to yeah. be doomed for some failure. And then I think as you were speaking about having, I, I flip-flop on this all the time, but I think ultimately if you want to succeed and keep going, you do have to have some grace and some compassion for the people who are resistant. Because if you dig in your heels, then they dig in their heels and it become, and you know, often these are much more established figures who you're potentially not going to win against. So some of the things that I've found to be important and effective are figuring out who your person, who you think your opposition is, and then meeting with them and talking to them about what you're doing and why, and making sure that it's not something that they feel is forced upon them and that you're not, it's, it's not a, it's not a forced mandate. And there's some degree to which that will be successful. And there's some degree where you're, you may have to be like time to get with the times. And um, this is an important part of being a competent surgeon and clinician and leader. And you have some learning to do. And it's just like you have learning in any surgical skill. There's, it's uncomfortable. <laughs> I say this is early in my fellowship. It's uncomfortable to not know what you're doing and to be in situations that push you to grow. And it is very understandable to want to withdraw from that and go back to your safe comfort space. But if you encourage people to continue that growth and applaud them when they make progress, even if you think that it is <laughs> 20 years overdue progress, I think that that's going to help you. I just applaud you for all of your efforts and really moving this forward. I know on social media, you're a, uh, amazing and being able to put together a very quick virtual abstract. And, a, um, and I'm sure that helped with the adoption and getting this out there. That's very much been a labor of love. Dr. Newman, I'm going to switch roles uh, a little bit now. I know you recently took on a new leadership role as the interim section head of pediatric surgery at the Department of Surgery with uh, University of Michigan. Can you tell us about your approach to this new role as change is always a little challenging for a group, especially one that's been so established? I'm really excited. I think that, um, you know, we have, in my opinion, of course, maybe I'm biased, maybe I'm not, but I think we have the best pediatric surgery program in the country. We stand on the shoulders of giants with our clinical expertise and clinical excellence um, through what has been built by Dr. Corrin and Dr. Herschel, um, our um, learning, our learners, and our fellowship program, I think is, again, you know, one of the best, our research program. I mean, we have academic surgeons that are, you know, Dr. Herschel and his, um, you know, liquid ventilation and um, Dr. Mahalishka and the, um, you know, fetal placenta. So amazing and incredible research. And, you know, we're a family. And so that too, I think, you know, contributes to our excellence. And so I, I will just say that it is extremely uh, humbling to fill this role. I think, you know, the way that I'm approaching the role is I'm going to spend the next month just listening and learning. I think, Erin, maybe you and I've talked about this before, the way that I approach leadership. I keep yeah. adding these L's. You know, I'm planning to learn more and listen more. I think that is so important. I think I know about pediatric surgery because I've been here for so long. I trained here. I'm viewing my role as really to be to serve the faculty and to understand how I can best support our faculty and our section 
um, really focusing on, on our people. And I know that if we focus on our people and their excellence and their advancement, then the, our results are going to be there. Listen more, learn more. Um, you know, the other L's just put it out there because this is, I think about this stuff all the time is that language matters, you know, assuring that we're all speaking the same language and that when we are talking and thinking that, you know, and using words that we understand where, you know, what we mean by that. I mean, one, one example that I use is that if we were to say the word diversity, we can all go around the room. We probably have a different explanation of what that meant. Right. So yeah. I, I try not to even use that word anymore, even though I can't help it sometimes, but, you know, should we be using words like representation or, um, you know, identity, lowering bias. And so just thinking about even my own biases, right. But always focusing on bias um, as we're thinking about progress in our teams and what the role of bias is in the decisions we make, particularly if we're making big decisions. And so just trying to understand and making sure that I can check my own biases and that I'm keeping bias sort of um, you know, at least in our um, field of view as we're thinking about how we can keep getting better. And when people, when you mention bias, they automatically go to the more common explanation around bias and implicit bias. But I really think of it as we all have it, right? It's, it's the shortcut that our brains take to keep us safe. And just realizing and recognizing that what our biases are, therefore we can mitigate them, you know, and mitigate their influence, as particularly when we're making a big decision. Level and load the pipeline is another one. So thinking about our pipeline in pediatric surgery and preparing them, our students and our residents and making our section one where people, you know, want to come and be and, and, and become pediatric surgeons, that's really exciting to me. And then the last one, I think, is just, you know, lead with love and compassion. Does it sound cheesy? I don't really care if it does because it's what I do, you know, and I think that, yeah, you want a leader that can love, you know, and lead with compassion. And so that those are my guiding principles. I love that. And certainly all of us um, and the MWC are rooting behind you and so proud of you. Um, and thanks so much, new boss. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Well, I'm relying on your leadership. You're uh-huh. listen. You're right there, uh, leading right alongside me, and I, 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 I look so forward to 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 doing this and being on this journey um, with you and with my sisters in the MWSC. Thank you both so much for coming. It's been such an honor to have you both and learn from your um, ways that you've had to create change and make things anew. Any words of wisdom you want to leave? understand that that change is worth it um, and understand the context that you are operating in and make sure that you build a team and allies and that you are as willing to change and to re-examine yourself as you're asking the people around you to do as well. And then if you really lead from a place of this is a shared issue, we all have growth, just like surgical skill. This will be a, a growth pattern that you need to apply to your life um, in continuity, it's it's not a tick box that will be over once, and it's something that we can work towards um, as a collective. In a change-averse environment, stick to your why and your purpose as your guiding light, and then just go for it. 
Thanks for listening to the Michigan Surgery Sessions podcast. To learn more about the Department of Surgery at Michigan Medicine, our people, and our programs, and to find more podcasts, visit our website at medicine.umich.edu slash dept slash surgery.